Hi everyone, welcome to the latest session in this podcast series looking at the built environment's ever-increasing net zero carbon agenda with specific context and consideration to London and the City of Westminster. This session focuses upon the role of developers in delivering the UK's carbon reduction commitments, the additional resourcing and upfront investment needed to ensure delivery of net zero carbon buildings and identifying the challenges and opportunities working with the existing buildings within the city. My name is Oliver Morris. I'm a sustainability and energy consultant currently working at TFT, and I sit on the WPA NextGen Committee, which is currently sponsored by Garden and Theobald. I'm joined today by Andy Haig, who's Director of Climate Positive Solutions for Grove in Britain and Ireland. Andy is responsible for delivering their net zero carbon pathway across their operations and through their value chain. A bit of context to Grosvenor. So Grosvenor Britain and Ireland, otherwise known as GBI, are part of the Grosvenor Group, which is an internationally diversified property group. GBI develop and manage a large property estate in London and are very active within the city of Westminster. Last year, GBI issued their net zero carbon pathway, which alongside their sustainability development brief, independently verified science-based carbon targets and publicly announced environmental commitments are driving performance of their state towards a sustainable future. Hi, Andy. Good to, good to have you on. Hi, yeah. Great to be here. So what are you, Grosvenor, Britain and Ireland, doing to drive low embodied carbon developments within the city? Well, luckily, you've already answered a bit of that question with my introduction. So thank you for that. I guess first and foremost is our net zero carbon pathway. So by 2030, we've state, stated that we'll see an absolute carbon emission reduction by 52% across all of our impacts, both direct and indirect through our value chain. And down to our value chain includes our tenants, our suppliers, and the embodied carbon in our new developments. For me, embodied carbon is both the embodied carbon in the materials, but also the suppliers helping to achieve that. So, you know, the main contractors and kind of construction suppliers in which we operate. We have something that we call a sustainable development brief. And since launching our net zero pathway, any new design project must achieve a target of 500 kilograms of CO2 per square meter in terms of embodied carbon. And existing design projects, ones already kind of in flight, have to achieve a, a 650 figure, but are all aiming for that 500 figure. So we're kind of reanalyzing the performance of our existing designs to see how far we can push them in that regard. And I guess first and foremost, you have to have those types of targets and really try to mandate it and push it through the through the design teams. We're also members of Steel Zero and are looking to maximize the opportunities for kind of low carbon steel on, on one of our projects and really working with the supply chain to deliver that. We also are looking at a number of concrete alternatives such as SEM-free and carbon cure to reduce CO2 in concrete because we appreciate that kind of steel and concrete are kind of two of the hardest to abate sectors and we need to be you know, actively looking in those areas. And we're also looking at a very innovative CLT timber structure for uh, one of our projects as well. So we're really trying to kind of push the boundaries of, of what low carbon development could be. And then at a supplier level, We've got a target for 40% of our supply chain to have a science-based target by 2030, but we're aiming for obviously a lot more to happen a lot sooner there. And we're specifically focusing as part of that 40% to include both main contractors and, yeah, as I said, kind of construction-based suppliers because they have the, the kind of the highest impact uh, in terms of carbon. So those are just kind of some of the measures that we're taking to kind of drive, drive low carbon developments within our portfolio. With the 500 kilogram embodied carbon target for your, your developments and, and the 40% reduction via supply chain, how has that affected your investment decisions? Very good question. We've had to really work our supply chain hard, especially around the kind of the 500 kilogram target. For now, I guess the main decision that's impacting is pushing our consultants to really review the designs 
And then in terms of investment, it means will there be an uptick in cost of steel or concrete or additional program implications of trying to get CLT timber structures through fire regs and kind of fire safety testing. It's having some impact in that regard. But I think the, the, the real investment impact is actually we're looking at investing in current projects and properties in the market to expand our portfolio. And at that level, we're reviewing the energy performance of those buildings before we make any decisions and doing retrofit assessments to see how we could bring them in line with our net zero pathway. And importantly, we're investing in our existing building stock. At the same time as launching our net zero pathway, we also launched a £90 million retrofit fund which has been ring-fenced just for refurbishing our existing estate. And we're a company, of, we've been around for over 300 years, so we have some very historic buildings and kind of grade one, grade two listed. So actually bringing those buildings up to scratch is just as important for us as investing in new buildings and improving their efficiency. You touched on it there. I was going to ask you, given 80% of existing buildings are going to be around in 2050, what's GBI's focus to, to prioritise refurbishment? What's the business case for that? Well, for us, our existing buildings, buildings are critical to our success. They're considered both a major risk, but also an opportunity for our our business. We want to see them as an opportunity. We want to be attracting both tenants and customers to our properties and to our estate because of our net zero ambition. And that's why we've created this £90 million retrofit fund, which are ring-fenced just to bring those buildings up to scratch. And we want them to perform just as high as the kind of highest performing new buildings. There's obviously a risk associated with not doing that, that those will start to become stranded assets and then be unlettable in the short to also probably probably the medium to long term as MEES and other legislation comes into play. But for us, we seeing as an opportunity to get ahead of the market and be marketing these buildings and assets to be attracting tenants that align to our, our net zero ambitions. And in addition, we're also pushing for planning reform. A lot of our buildings are historic, up to 300 years old and either grade one and grade two listed, which means that retrofitting them can be prohibitive in the current eyes of planning. So we are pushing for reform to allow historic buildings to be brought up to standard in the net zero world, putting in double glazing, improving insulation, kind of the systems that run and manage them. We're actively looking to both retrofit our buildings, but also changing the system to allow others to push harder and faster and, and bringing their buildings up to scratch as well. The £90 million retrofit fund you mentioned, assuming that's applied to projects and through measures that are the, within the control or your control, the design team's control, as a landlord for many existing assets, are there also opportunities to engage with tenants at the point of occupation or refurbishment to minimise their carbon impact? Yes. So we have something called a green lease, which is now mandatory for all new leases. And it's something we're working with existing tenants to move them over to our green leases. And that requires much greater collaboration between ourselves and tenants in terms of energy performance. So it includes the installation of smart meters, doing what we call building performance evaluations when we go in, check the property, see the potential for energy enhancements, both in the building fabric, but also in the systems, and then working with those tenants to understand and plan and program for those enhancements. It also includes moving those tenants onto green energy tariffs. We kind of help throughout that whole process. We know that our tenants are critical to our success. They're approximately 25% of the total emissions of our portfolio. So we have to work with them. And we're kind of breaking down the barrier between a landlord and tenants to be a much more kind of a collaborative approach that we are collectively in this problem together. It is problem solving at the highest degree. It's a, it's a very complex problem, which is why we know that we need to be working with our tenants and supporting them as much as they're supporting us in our net zero pathway. Really interesting. 
you have a lot of assets and you, you do a lot of work in the city. Uh, are there any specific considerations that you make or that you feel need to be made, particularly when looking at heritage buildings? Yes, that's a really important question for us. As we have a very historic estate, we also have a, a large number of grade one and grade two listed properties. And that really puts a limitation on what you can refurbish and how far you can go in terms of bringing that property in line with the latest performance standards for newer builds. In particular, I'm thinking the building fabric, the air tightness and insulation, the types of glazing and the allowance of secondary glazing or double glazing, and then the actual systems to kind of heat and light that space. And it's difficult to move to low carbon heating sources such as air and ground source heat pumps if you have a, a very leaky building. And that's one of the reasons why in June we launched a paper seeking planning reform to allow heritage buildings to be brought in line with the latest design standards. There's no point having a beautiful leaky building if it becomes a stranded asset and is therefore unleasable, then starts to rot and decay in the heart of London. We need to be bringing our historic and heritage buildings in line with the dire need for speedy and rapid change in the improvement of the efficiency of our building stock. Great Andy, I mean it sounds like you you identified a, a couple of challenges there particularly with heritage assets. As a developer what do you see as the challenges to delivering low body carbon developments? Yeah I think that's a really interesting question because we have definitely experienced a few challenges as we've sought to address embodied carbon in our new developments. So such as the supply chain impact of trying to source lower carbon materials, such as low carbon concrete and steel, which may come with a financial impact, but also just comes with a sourcing and programming impact in terms of both design and actually construction program. There's also legislative impact around things like CLT and timber structures and the approvals required for fire risk. But we know that we have to push this. There isn't a requirement yet in planning to really drive the low embodied carbon that we want to see in development. So it's something that us as a client are really having to push. It means that we're asking difficult questions that haven't necessarily been asked by design teams very frequently. But we know it's becoming more popular and we're trying to help drive that change. That's great. There's a few things in there. Uh, you mentioned about you know innovative products and just your drive as a as a developer to really kind of change the game, I suppose, in how we design buildings, both new and and obviously then retrofit existing uh, also. I suppose finally, just a question on what you think has is or or will be an industry game changer uh, to delivering low body carbon developments, given the gauntlet that's been set around delivering a net zero carbon economy by 2050? I think for me, the most important decision is the retro first option. Within our industry, we inherently love the idea of knocking down and starting again and changing that mindset to see what can we reuse of an existing structure, I think is key. And I think to achieve that, we need to be setting embodied carbon targets across the industry, mandating whole life cycle assessments to really review the opportunities for that. Do you think it's a harder option or a more complicated option to try and reuse versus just knock down and start again? But we've seen kind of real benefits in, in some of our projects to doing so. For me, it's all around focusing on retro first, having companies or hopefully greater legislation to mandate for embodied carbon assessments and whole life cycle assessments of projects. Amazing. Yeah, that's that's great, Andy. It really sounds like Grover Britain and Ireland have kind of picked up the task, picked up the baton to really drive uh, low embodied carbon developments you know your your idea of, of retro first is something that i think as an industry we really need to um, adopt more widely 
I guess all that leaves me to say is thank you very much for, for, for joining us today. I'm sure the listeners have got a lot out of it. I certainly have. I'll be, I'll probably be listening back to the, back at this a couple of times. Um, there's lots of things you said in there that, that I'd, I'd like to listen to again. So yeah, no, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me and great to talk about some of the work we're doing. And I think it's really important to share our journey because we're not doing this for competitive advantage. We're doing it because we know collectively we need to change the sector. And the more people who join us on this journey, the better it is for the UK and to help combat climate change.